joy and being fully alive. Thank you. We could probably just all end right there this morning, I think, and we'd be fine. So how, how playful are you feeling this morning? Have you played yet today? Are you planning to? And you know what might be just as interesting as your answers to those questions is how you might be feeling about the fact that I'm asking you in the first place. I mean, you know, we, we gathered here for worship this morning, didn't we? So what does play have to do with it? And that I'd like to suggest is a very good question. And it's with that question in mind that I'd like to begin this morning by inviting you to reflect with me on what is now probably considered to be an old song, although I remember when it was a very new song, and just some images that accompany it. I want to take just a couple minutes to put the video up on the screen here and uh, just take a moment or two to listen to the song. I see the children playing and think of younger days. For now the years have found me and taken my childish ways. I hear the children laughing, how joyful they must be. remember when that was new. So as you watch and listen, what do you find the song and the images stirring in you this morning? Do you ever find yourselves at times watching children and wistfully thinking of younger days? And as the years have passed, do you have a sense of things that have been taken, left behind, neglected, or perhaps just kind of pushed aside as not being appropriate anymore? Do you ever find yourself envious of the way that children often seem to be able to so easily embrace the realization of how much God loves them, 
And yet, how elusive living in the awareness of that can be for yourself. How well do we do when it comes to living with a sense of freedom and exuberance of a child? Or is it that uh, now that we know better, we just need to grow up and take a more serious view of life after all? I can remember a teacher saying to one of my kids when they were very young, you know, you, you just need to toughen up. How many parents have not felt the heartache that comes from watching their children for the first time encounter those situations where plays nicely with others is not the phrase that would characterize what was happening? And you watch those first wounds to exuberant playfulness be inflicted. Most of us have been there. And how many have not at times longed to go back not so much because we want to avoid growing up, but out of the desire to recapture that something that does seem to have been left behind someplace, particularly in light of the invitation and even the urging of Jesus, both in the scriptures and in the song we just heard, to do just exactly that, to go back, suggesting that there is a significant part of the life of the kingdom that we will miss if we don't. And so just what is all of this about anyway? And what does play really have to do with it? Well, and then there's this thing that happens around our house every now and then, which I must admit the first time that it happened I thought was a bit odd. Lael, who you know, my wife, is a uh, PE teacher for, in a middle school down in San Bernardino, 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. And uh, she'd come home at the end of the day, all energized and excited and just on top of the world. And she exclaims, my kids played today. And I say, uh, Lael, you're a PE teacher. Isn't that what your kids do every day? And she says, no, 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 you don't understand. They actually played today. They actually played today. So what is that all about? And what does playing have to do with it? And then there's this incident that I ran across in a book here a while back that Catherine and Lauren Broadus talk about. Their book just happens to be about play. And they describe this incident. It seems that one day they're at the beach and this mother and this little boy arrive. You can tell by looking at them that they're not the type of people that generally go to the beach. They're definitely not beach people. And here's how they describe what they observed. I watched with delight the little boy who was looking around with a gaze that carried him everywhere all at once as his whole body just seemed to be soaking up the moments of awareness with stones and shells and water-hardened sand ridges. He sat he walked, he squatted, probed everything with his fingers and his toes. Contentment just seemed to wash over him. And then came his mother's irritated voice, commanding him to go into the water. That's what they came for, that's what they had sacrificed money and time and duties for, and that's what he needed to do. Startled, he would try to obey, but each time he would get caught up and all of the treasures that seemed to surround him. 
They kept drawing his attention away as he would once again slip into this world of peace and contentment with all of the neat stuff that just surrounded him. Again and again came the urgent voice of the mother, and finally, in disgust, she gathered up their belongings and, hauling him by one wrist, hurried him off the beach, muttering as she went about his ungratefulness and foolish response to this opportunity to play. And so we might ask, what was that all about? And what does play have to do with it? And then, of course, there's the sermon series we just finished, you know, but in reality, we'll probably never finish. One in which we were talking about our pictures of God and of what loving God and loving people looks like when you try to live that out. And the power that those images that we carry around in our heads have to shape the way that we experience that life. Which, when I put that alongside of Jesus urging us to get this thing about being children and the kingdom all figured out, and when I put it together with all these other things that I'm thinking about and we've talked about this morning, it seems to me that perhaps pursuing those questions, so what is that all about? And what does play have to do with it? Might just be worth doing this morning. And so that's what I want to invite you to do, is join me in an attempt to do that. I'd like to just explore it a little with you today, and I'd like to begin in a place that may at first seem a little bit odd to you, but which I think actually is a great place to start. And that's right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, to be exact. And if you have Bibles this morning and would like to follow along, you're welcome to open to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if you didn't bring one, there should be something in the pew rack in front of you if you want to do that. But I'd like you to go to Genesis 1, verse 1, and listen to how this passage opens with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created. And I want you just to hear the richness in that word. It doesn't say God assembled. It doesn't say God manufactured. It says God created. And thus begins the creation story. The creation story. And that's the way I want you to think about this this morning, as a story that's being told. Which is something that sometimes gets lost when we find ourselves trying to read Genesis 1 and 2 more like it was a textbook than a story. It was never intended to be that. And so while there are a lot of great things we could talk about in Genesis 1 and 2 that we could get into today and we could debate about and I'm sure we would all find very interesting, it's what's found in the story this morning that I want you to focus your attention on and just listen to. Now there are some things about this story that we already know, that we've talked about here before, and that, and that is that this creation story is actually kind of unique among other creation stories that were being told by other cultures at the time that the story was written. Many of those other creation stories describe the creation of the earth and the people on the earth as kind of a byproduct, almost an accident, that came about because the gods were not getting along with each other and there's actually this conflict going on and somehow in the midst of all of that, the world and people managed to get created. But what we have here is a very intentional act of a loving God. It's a different kind of story. 
who creates a world and who creates people who he hopes will reflect his image. They're created in God's image. But in addition to that, there's also something conveyed in the whole tone of the story that I think may give us a glimpse into just what this whole thing of play is all about and might help to tap in a little bit to what children, at least sometimes, seem to be more in tune with than some of the rest of us. And let me show you what I mean by that. Let's just go back to the passage once again. Listen to it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you think of the last time that you came up with something, that you created something that you were really excited about, and how that felt? the anticipation of the moment and kind of watching it happen. With that in mind, imagine for a moment what it must have been like for God as we continue on through these verses. Verse two, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God, it says, was hovering over the waters. You can almost feel the anticipation in the story and what's about to happen. Verse three, and God says, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was an evening, and there was a morning, the first day. Now, can you imagine God imagining the creation of the world? Not just because he was bored and needed something to do, but out of love and out of a desire to give birth to something that was amazing, including beings that would be able to relate to him in a way that was unique and that would reflect his own image. And so as the story goes on, it says, God said, let there be light, and God looks at what he has done and he says, yes, I like this. This is good. And then the sense of satisfaction you sort of pick up as you get to the end of the phrase, and there was evening and morning, the first day, the first day. And then you continue to see this over and over again as God moves on through the rest of the creation week, expressing himself in amazingly creative ways, not slogging through a difficult, complicated, and exhausting task that he somehow had to get done before the deadline, you know, Friday afternoon when the sun starts to go down so he can collapse exhausted for Sabbath but this, enjoy, this joyful, intricate, wonderfully artistic God making things up in his mind and then calling them into existence, moving from imagination to reality. God involved, as it were, in creative play. It's a great picture. I love the way that C.S. Lewis portrays this and the imagery he uses in one of his children's books in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Where, as you know, he borrows a bit from biblical imagery here and there, and Jesus is, perform is, uh, is uh, portrayed, rather, in the form of a lion that goes by the name of Aslan in the story. And at one point, the children that are a part of the story find themselves in this dark, empty, lifeless place. Actually, not a lot different from the beginning of Genesis 1. They're about to witness the creation of a new world, but they don't know that yet. And as they stand there, they begin to hear this incredibly beautiful and powerful music. At first, they can't tell where it's coming from, 
but what they do know is that it makes them feel alive in ways they had never felt alive before. And soon as light begins to appear, they see that it is Aslan that is the source of the music. And the more that things begin to change around them, they realize that Aslan is actually singing the world into existence. It's an incredible image that he uses in the book. Let me just read you a short excerpt of what happens here. It was powerful, yet soft and lilting, a gentle rippling music. As he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer, more alive. Soon there were other things. On the higher up slopes, there was dark heather growing. Patches of refer and more bristling green appeared in the valley. Diggory, one of the children in the story, did not know what they were until one began coming up quite, quite close to him. It was a little spiky thing that grew out dozens of arms and covered these arms with green. There were dozens of this, these things around him now, and when they were nearly as tall as himself, he finally saw what they were. Trees, he exclaimed. And anyway, the story goes on and describes what it was like to watch this world springing from the imagination of God as he sings it into existence. I love what is conveyed in the imagery here of God joyfully, even playfully, bringing life into the world, singing it into existence. And by playful, I don't mean to be talking about something that's trite or trivial or in any way takes away from the significance of something. Anything that diminishes from the awesomeness or reverence for what is taking place. You don't get a hint of that at all. But rather, this rich quality, this joyful expressiveness that makes you feel more complete and more alive than you felt in maybe ever before. Self-forgetful, free, exuberant. This is the tone of the creation story that we too often miss when we read Genesis chapters one and two with our other agendas in mind and with our other questions that drag us away from what's being said. But it's part of the story that comes back into focus, particularly when we remember that it is Jesus who tells us that when we have seen him, we have seen the creator, a God who is so huge and amazing that in his presence we are left speechless, we feel undone. We take off our shoes because we're standing on holy ground. And yet, a God who, now that we have our shoes off, invites us to run barefoot through the grass. It's a God who, in Genesis, walks with us in the cool of the day of the garden, and in the gospel, gathers up little children in his arms to bless them. And who, in the creation story, is saying at each step along the way, isn't this good? Isn't this good? Until he finally gets to the sixth day of creation where it all comes to a climax as he creates beings in his own image. And there he says, not that this is just good, but that this is very good. It's very good. All of which is, of course, followed by Sabbath in which they all pause to celebrate together what it means that God really is the creator. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that Genesis 1 and 2, in a very profound and significant way, 
is a story about God at play. And that it was the same quality of playfulness that he hoped to pass on to those he created in his image and with whom he entrusted the care of this new world. A kind of play that doesn't trivialize but brings things to life and allows the life that they've been created with to be enjoyed. It would be nice if the story stopped there, actually, but it doesn't. As we know, as we read on in chapter 3, the same story very quickly takes a tragic turn. With the entrance of sin, the sense of open, joyful, creative exuberance that had so characterized the way they had related to God and their world and to each other up to this point, becomes shattered and stained. There is now a deep sense of anxiety, a deep sense of shame. There is self-consciousness like they have never experienced it before. And so as we read on in verse 8 of chapter 3, when they hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day like it had been his custom, instead of responding like they had before, we find them not only hiding from God, but beginning to distance themselves from each other as well. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, we find in chapter 2, has now become in chapter 3, the woman you put here with me. They are no longer playing nicely with others. It's not about what we have done. It's about who we can assign the blame to. And then in verses 16 to 19, God goes on to describe some of the ways that the damage would begin to show up in their world. The wonder and joy of bringing new life into the world would now also be mixed with pain. Relationships intended to be characterized by the mutual sharing of equals would now tend to become driven more by things like seeking to satisfy people's needs, struggling for power or domination. Who's in charge? And instead of what we do being a creative, joyful expression of who we are as people created in God's image, our work would have a tendency to become something that we feel driven or compelled to do or something that drives and compels us in order to win or achieve or surpass or in some way secure our place in a world where our place has become questionable. All of which eventually gets pretty tired and exhausting. And as some have discovered, some of what were thought to be rewards in the end may turn out to be deeply infested with thorns and thistles. That's the impact it would have. But whatever form they take, it's when those kind of things become the dominant forces in our lives that we begin to lose our ability to play. We begin to miss what we were created for. But the good news is, is that we don't have to live that way. In fact, also embedded right here in the midst of the tragic parts of the story in Genesis 3 is the promise of a coming deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent and through his own wounds would bring healing to his creation again and who would teach them once again what it meant to play. Someone who starts off his ministry by supplying wine at a wedding, who suggests that we might be better off if we took more of our cues from the flowers of the field and from children than from the expectations we too easily absorb from people and the world around us and who reminds us in John 15, verse 11, 
I have told you all this that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. It's one of those pictures of God that we've been talking about in the sermon series in the past and what we're touching on this morning begin to come more fully into focus for us and we begin to realize the extent to which we really are embraced by grace that we discover that we really can learn to play again, that it's okay. And so what might that playful like life look like? That's actually what we want to explore a little bit for the next couple of weeks in the sermon series that we're doing. But there is just one brief glimpse that I'd like to give you this morning that I just ran across this last week, actually of just what one little aspect of what it might look like if we were really to learn to play again. It comes out of a book that is called Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. Just, it was just printed a couple of months ago and uh, got some great stuff in it. And in this book, it gives a little illustration that is actually the description of a model sports program that uh, is somewhere in the Midwest. It's led by a guy by the name of uh, Gary, who is a coach. And let me just read to you the way that this sports program is described. Coach Gary coaches hockey for six to nine-year-olds. He puts his teams together randomly, doesn't recruit for talent, and he starts his kids out not with games, but on rollerblades, skating on sidewalks and empty parking lots around town with their hockey sticks over their heads. He has them skate on a hill that has a lawn so they can fall down and not hurt themselves. They have fun and they learn to skate around objects, they learn to skate backwards, they learn to skate in amazing ways as they do this. This allows them to build their skills, their confidence, and for Gary to get a feel for the kids' personalities and who needs extra help. They also do exercises that build teamwork. When they finally do get into the rink, they don't use a puck, but a midget football. It's almost impossible to control, and so they can get the feel of moving and passing, but don't feel ashamed if they mess up and don't feel like they're doing real well. Later, when they do use a puck, they are more accustomed to passing and find this so much easier to control. They focus more on passing than on scoring, and by the time they are ready to play actual games, they have learned to work together as a team with energy and skill and look forward to the fun of the competition. Experiencing personal improvement, not stardom, is the gauge for mutual respect. The result is that Gary's teams have won the championship in the area for, the, for 13 of the last 15 years. But more important than that, win or lose, these kids love to play. They love to play. Is anybody listening? He continues. I went to a banquet one year when they did not win. Both Gary's team and the championship team were sitting at adjoining tables. The contrast was remarkable. Gary's team was having a great time, while the other team was looking a bit more serious. The winning coach was pretty hardcore for this age group putting up with no silliness, running his team through the necessary skills and drills constantly. They were winners, but anyone looking at the two teams would have thought that Gary's team was the champion. 
In fact, indeed, when the waiter came up to Gary's team, he asked them how it felt to win the trophy. They happily told him that they had lost. Perhaps that's just a tiny glimpse of what it might look like. I think that just maybe we might be getting at the beginning of what Jesus is talking about. And what the little boy at the beach understood that his mother did not. And what it is that Lael finds so satisfying about the work she does when her kids get it and they play. What a cool thing it would be if at the end of the day today as the sun sets, if God were able to sit back and smile and say, my kids played today. My kids played today. As we enter into prayer now, perhaps that is part of what we pray for when we ask that God's kingdom will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your artistry, for your creativity, for your playfulness, and for the knowledge that we are created in your image and your invitation for us to embrace that. We pray that when the day is done today and when our lives are done, that you may be able to look at us and say, my kids have played well. Help us to know how to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.